One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the television shows of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Lisko. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, an AI recreation of Emily St. James. Oh, Jesus. Wow. This is is the weekend when we all got briefly worried that Zoom is like stealing all of our identities. And now we're not. Now we're not sure there are. We're just kind of like they're maybe just kind of slightly stealing our identities. Yeah, they they issued a new statement that made me slightly less concerned that they're stealing my face. But. Well, they're stealing my face, but that's because I signed a document saying they could. I was like, please, please. Right, exactly. Your licensing deal is, I'm sure, very reasonable also. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, with us today, as you just heard, the dulcet tones of Catherine Van Arendonk, critic at Vulture, to talk with us today about Murphy Brown, specifically the premiere of season five, You Say Potato, I Say Potato, um, depending on how you spell it, because Dan Quayle, you know, doesn't know yeah. how to spell it. Um, but also to talk about just Murphy Brown in general. Thank you so much, Catherine, for being here to talk about this with us. Yeah. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anything I can do to help push back against the increasing memory hole Murphy Brown phenomenon yeah. that our culture is is uh, suffering from, I'm very happy to do. And it is just wild to me that we are somehow still in this place where Murphy Brown is like impossible to get or watch and like is like fading from the distant memory, even though there was an incredibly like buzzy revival like just a for couple a of, for a second <laughs> just a couple years ago like it just yeah. it's like it, it can't exist anymore which i think is you know I, yeah I, I, what's interesting for so i my my uh 
knowledge history with Murphy Brown it seems to mostly be that my my mother and my stepmother both really liked it. So mm-hmm. they watched it a lot. And I remember watching episodes of it. And it is burned in my brain in terms of the fact that she was iconic, right? Like even to a you know 10 or 12 year old boy, you know, in Canada, I was like, this person means something. And I agree with you that, like, obviously CBS thought the same thing because they tried to do a revival. Was it CBS or NBC? Because I feel CBS. Like yes. yeah. Okay, it did. Um, and then the revival happened post the Will and Grace revival, correct? So they mm-hmm. thought, like, that there was a chance that the they could real, do again. like, the real impetus for that was the Roseanne revival. Like, oh, the Roseanne right. revival came along. And, like, I think that they were announced Murphy Brown before Roseanne debuted, but Roseanne debuts and just totally blows everyone's expectations of what a revival can be out of the water uh and uh, then murphy brown came on and was not did not match those expectations you know so i'm curious obviously on both of your perspectives on this because i feel like the show murphy brown was um political to some degree right like it wasn't a political show conceptually speaking or was it? No, I mean, not conceptually speaking, but it was always a show that lived in the real world of politics. Like all of its references, all of its um, sort of the the kinds of stories that she would be covering, because sure. her job was as as the one of the. I, I don't think technically she was the anchor. I think Jim was the anchor, but she was like a co-anchor and like the mm-hmm. lead reporter on a weekly news magazine show a la 60 minutes mm-hmm. her nemesis was jane Pauley, and they and the show like existed in the real world like they were covering the savings and loans crisis which was like a, a huge deal at this point they were constantly talking about um specific political figures they were talking they were making very topical references it was pretty clearly that they were dem she was a democrat but was always very like neutral on the air uh talked about like corruption talk- i mean it was a very and so i think it was political in that sense in the sense of being like you know engaged with what we would think of as news politics but it was also incredibly and explicitly political throughout the show as far as w- the kind of issues type of storytelling that it was always about um there would regularly be episodes about uh like labor issues about uh i mean all kinds of um certainly this whole episode that we're going to be talking about is very political from an issue standpoint uh but like and from a reality perspective like like they literally (laughs) right 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 but like you know I, i think it was it is unusual for both of those things to come together. It was like sort of the the issuesy political storytelling that the show was doing combines with like the real world political references that it liked to make. Um, this and it really was a newsroom the, show on top of everything else, show, right? Sort of so the nexus was, for that. So right. yeah, but but the the explicit fabric of it was sitcom, which even now going back and right. watching it is a kind of hilarious because uh, it's not structurally sitcom in a lot of ways. It's no. Uh, uh, yeah. it, it like it's very much from the Norman Lear school of making television, which is weird because it has a lot of surface similarities with the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm-hmm. But like the Mary Tyler Moore show was more interested in interpersonal relationships and like it had political episodes. But like mm-hmm. it's it's mean was we're going to return to Mary hanging out with Rhoda and then she has her friends at work and she and Lou have this like 
great relationship that is not romantic, but you can ship them if you want. Um, and uh, and many fans did. And uh, but the Norman Lear shows were like this week, Archie Bunker is going to talk about inflation. And yeah, you're like, right. OK, great. And Murphy Brown's very. But another thing I think is true of this show is that it was political in its like central idea of yes, like 100 percent. A woman who is bold and brassy and takes no prisoners and like has a big important job and everyone has to listen to her. And I mean, we can we can dig a little bit more into how that plays into the way that Dan Quayle reacted to her. But from the pilot on, it's like this woman is is a full fully dimensional character in a way that like I don't want to say 80s TV wouldn't regularly allow because there are a lot of great there's honestly probably more great roles for women especially of candace bergen's mm-hmm. age in television in like 1988 when the show mm-hmm. debuted than there are right now but uh but yeah it was very much like this woman doesn't need a man to be okay and like that yeah. in and of itself like made some people just a little bit little bit triggered if you will well, no so, absolutely yeah sorry I, to- yeah i went back and i watched the the pilot for this also same um and it opens the the premise of the pilot. It opens to her returning to the workplace after a period away, and you're not sure why in the beginning. Uh, but the very first thing that you see is this opening camera pan over the art on her walls, and they are all framed magazine covers of her, and they are like her standing next to a president. Uh, her being uh, like it's like she's the best reporter of all time there's like an esquire cover that like is like what man could be man enough for this woman there's like a star you know like a tabloid one that's like she's like the mother of a alien baby or something uh it's like fabulous over 40 on a vanity fair or something like it is very much like the entire premise of the show is she is this iconic unusual remarkable woman and then you learn that she has been away and is now returning to work because she went to rehab because she had an alcohol problem and is now kicked cigarettes and alcohol and so like from the jump like that's a wild way to start any show like now and i think in 1988 must have been like what the hell are we did they ever tap back into her alcoholism oh yeah yeah they did okay Okay. Yeah, it <clears throat> appears, I mean, sort of less so in later season, that's less a part of her story, but um, over the first couple seasons, that's something that, uh, I don't think she ever, I don't think they ever do, like, that exploitative, like, relapse right, right, right. arc thing for her, um, but it is definitely a, a touchstone that they mm-hmm. that they come back to a couple times, uh, and in particular, it's sort of meant to signal her obsessive compulsive, like, her really... Right. You know, the way Control that she, issues. Yeah. And the way that she digs into things and the way that like she has made not traditional housewife her whole identity, which is like mm-hmm. this. This is uh, all of these are tropes that we would associate with male protagonists. Right. The like heavy drinking, heavy smoking, heavy working person. But it's Murphy Brown and Murphy, of course, also which is why the baby a... stuff is so yeah. great, oh which we yeah. which we'll obviously talk. Yes. About, I, yeah. yeah. I do want to say that I think the I I struggle with Murphy Brown in the whole I think as a whole show like 
if you watch all 10 seasons, it really has a point where it just kind of goes downhill and never recovers, which is true of most shows that run 10 seasons. But um, I, uh, I really think the first four seasons have their ups and downs, but they're all show run by Diane English. Yeah. And Diane English has a really clear vision of who this person is and where she wants to take her. And every time the show starts to drift a little bit too far into like easy political humor, she always like brings it back to Murphy is a complicated difficult person um and the second she leaves and we literally watched her last episode and her first episode mm-hmm. and the first episode without her mm-hmm. uh for this episode and uh the second she leaves the show uh just kind of becomes this much simpler baser version of itself i think i say potato you say potato with an e is uh you know uh put a pretty good episode but it, if you watch the season four finale next to it you're like oh okay this is written by someone who really cares about all of this yeah and then yeah so she leaves is season four so the show goes on for six more seasons without her is that, yep. is that and correct? then she comes back for the revival for the revival right yeah, yeah but i believe she i believe she like co-show ran or show ran the final season and the final yeah so okay. 10 10 is really interesting the big mm-hmm. arc of season 10 the last like real final season revival is its own thing um the big arc is that murphy gets breast cancer and so that is also its own whole uh story and you can feel the return of some of the complexities of what her life is like and the show's interest in doing storytelling that is about you know big like women's issues kinds of things uh which i think is is interesting um you know, the other thing I was going to say is that the the way that Murphy is written in the first few seasons versus later, um, it, it is so interesting because, I, as I was saying before, the it's not really a sitcom structure in a lot of ways, like, or it's not, it, the, the stories do not have what I would think of as like a workplace sitcom because it's almost always interpersonal stuff, right? Like we're fighting, there's like a circumstance at work and it is the reason that we need to figure out some kind of plot that ends, but the circumstance is generally transformed into some kind of interpersonal thing. Um, In Murphy, even early in this like first season, almost all of the plots are like, I have a source who wants to tell me something, but we can't get that source on without me compromising a journalistic value that I have. How are we going to wrap that up in 27 minutes? Uh, and I think the later seasons tend to be a little bit more like, you know, I just am having a fight with you over our stupid right. shoes or like something like that. Yeah. yeah. When it's, I was a journalist, I was always upset when my problems weren't resolved in 27 minutes. Television might have set an unrealistic expectation <laughs> well, for me. There's also, it's funny you say 27 minutes because it's 22 minutes now. So it yeah. is interesting that like, as over the years, more and more ad time means, you know, less and less actual screen time. But I wanted to just talk about something to, to rewind to the political angle for a second, because this show premieres like 10 days after George H.W. Bush is elected. Um, and it ends pretty knee deep in the Clinton administration. Uh, and then it comes back in 2018 as a reflection of you know the Trump administration. And I can understand the notion of what does Murphy Brown have to say about Donald Trump's America, for lack of a better way of putting it, right? Like, there is something there. Um, I did not watch the revival. I'm assuming you guys did? Some of it. I don't know if I watched... I, no, I ended up watching all of it because we did a podcast okay. episode about Murphy Brown. So, like, I watched... Okay. 
because Diane English only agreed to talk to us because she was trying to get the revival renewed. And so we like mm. talked to her about Dan Quayle and then didn't put any of the stuff about the revival in the episode, which is fine. It's it's how the soup gets made. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just it, it is interesting to me when it was announced with Roseanne, with Will and Grace, I was like, this this makes sense. And I understand like that's a compelling interesting what is murphy like in 2018 um but america's just complete uninterest in it was really kind of shocking to me like just a total disregard you hadn't been able to see it for so long like it's because this show has like significant music rights issues and they they iron them out for syndication but it didn't play well in syndication probably because the humor is inherently about like political figures who we no longer care about this episode has a joke about paul songus who's like you know everyone's favorite i I know who that is because he was a distant cousin of a kid i grew up with but like that's the only reason i know that uh and uh yeah it's so i think that it never played well in syndication which meant it didn't have you know will and grace roseanne whatever faults you want to find with them they lasted forever in reruns so people knew those characters it just didn't happen with murphy brown i actually at the Mm. time had a great pitch for what show should be revived and we'll talk about that later oh great can't wait um i want to give just a little bit of context for the people that maybe have not watched murphy brown which if you have not watched murphy brown thank you for listening but i don't really know why you are but that's great hi um Hey, uh, Murphy Brown is a television sitcom created by Diane English, as we mentioned, premiered on November 14th, 1988 on CBS. Uh, It stars Candace Bergen as the uh, titular Murphy Brown, a famous investigative journalist and news anchor for FYI, a fictional CBS television news magazine, uh, and later for Murphy in the Morning, a cable morning news show. Was that what the revival was about? Or what was she? Yeah. Was that? Yeah, so I think what happened, I believe the premise of the revival was Murphy and Catherine's her face is amazing. Murphy and her son are on competing morning shows and his is on yes. a thinly veiled Fox News uh mm. ripoff, but he's not yes. like a conservative. He's just like I don't he's know, trying he's... to be reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> uh the series originally ran uh until May 18th, 1998, airing a total of 247 episodes over 10 seasons. Uh, and then in January of 2018, it was announced a 13 episode revival, which we mentioned, premiered on September 27th and was canceled uh at the end of its run. Um, the show, what's interesting too, and you guys kind of hinted at this earlier, but like the single mother, single woman that doesn't quote unquote need to be completed by a man. Um, is something that really kind of broke through. I mean, obviously you have shows like Ally McBeal, Sex and City, Desperate Housewives, Good Wife. Like there's lots of shows of independent women, as much as I hate that moniker, um, that benefited from Murphy Brown, I think. Like it does feel like Murphy Brown was the tip of the spear in a lot of ways. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just, but then like you run down that list of shows and like all of very different very different very very different and like many of those shows are examples of women who you can feel already the way they have been like softened by like like let's not go all the way murphy brown you know but like she's i mean even the good wife where the whole point is that she's like trying to split off from this husband who is bad is like well, she's the good wife. She starts as that we see her standing next to him. And it's like, can she have an identity separate from right. him? What would it be like to go back? And the fact that Murphy not only doesn't like 
you know, she doesn't need that man in the beginning, but the whole premise at the beginning is just like, and we're proud of it. And we're just going to shout about the fact that she's never had this kind of role in her life. Uh, I, I don't know of another, I mean, I guess there probably are shows uh, a little bit later, or they tend to be more like crime drama e type shows. They're the right. like detective figure, and she's all like grim and angry. Hard as nails. I mean, don't yeah. forget the mysteries of Laura. Uh, <laughs> Who could forget the mysteries of Laura? <laughs> I, you know, I, I as you were talking, Catherine, I was thinking about the horrible label of unlikability. This idea that to this day as I pitch things you have to deal with, like it's still a thing. And it's definitely more of a thing for women than it is for men, for female characters than male characters. And I feel like Murphy really walks that fine line. And I, and I say that part of it is Candace Bergen, who I can't imagine another human being portraying this character because she has this prickliness and yet at the same time, a charm and a watchability, like she is really walking that line, um, which I think is so key to this whole thing working. You know, I, I think that yeah. Candace Bergen, whose career is fascinating, and we'll talk about her just to sort of unpack her and where she, but, but still like when she pops up on Sex and the City in the later seasons, it's a breath of fresh air, but it's also like, she means business and she does. Carrie is just like too soft. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I keep thinking about the pilot. Um, she comes, the premises, she comes back in the elevator and they have hung this like, welcome back Murphy sign. Sure. And they are worried that, and she like is not, she comes off the elevator and she's like, hello everyone. How are you doing? She's like very polite and she's very yes. excited to see everyone. She goes in the office and they are, and then Im immediately you her, hear her scream at her new secretary, which is one of the jokes of the yeah. ongoing jokes of the show that she can't keep a secretary. Yep. It's not always her fault. It's like often they're completely ill-suited for this job. Yeah. Um, sure. You hear her scream at the secretary and they say, oh, thank God she's back. We missed her. And it just as a way to like write that little thing that like she's prickly yeah. and we like that about her to communicate that just from the first jump of the show, right. I think is is so baked into what this whole show is about yeah it's really for sure it's really interesting Sorry, to like no. situate murphy brown as a character within the waves of feminism i'm just let's sure. just talk about that why yeah, not yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. she's yeah, like yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> because the way that she is like a character is like she gets to do all the things a man would do uh just in she's great and she does them all well but also she gets to like yell at her secretaries and like be just a total asshole to them and like I don't want to say that like Murphy's like the most toxic person alive. And a lot of those jokes are funny. I, I mean, my favorite honestly is when it's on Seinfeld and Kramer is her secretary. Yeah. Um, but it is, a, that's a joke that if you're just watching Seinfeld on Netflix, just must be like, what the fuck is this? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I like there is this thing of like, okay, she's just women can do everything men can do and they could do it exactly yeah. the same way. And then you look at Sex in the City, which is like another wave removed. And Sex in the City is like, no, there are elements of femininity that are worth traditional femininity, mm -hmm. how society presents it to us that are worth incorporating. And it is just this real, really distinctive uh, uh, draw, line uh, drawing of a line because I think Candace Bergen's a fascinating figure in that she grew up in old Hollywood. 
like became a performer yep. in new Hollywood and now has this really unique ability to transcend generational lines, no matter how old she is. And like, I think that's why it makes her a good figure for those sorts of roles. Yeah. Well, yeah. well it's, you know, talking about feminism, I, I talking about feminism, but I did an episode on uh, Ally McBeal for our 99 podcast uh, whenever the hell I did that episode and there's a, a a time magazine cover which you guys might remember or newsweek where it's like glorious you're seeing the various faces of like it's I think it's four women and you're seeing sort of the the you know the the arc of feminism and then it's Ally McBeal she's like l- literally next to Gloria Steinem and it's like yeah. is this what feminism has become and I'm just sort of like I mean Ally McBeal was a huge show she was very much sort of a uh an icon i don't know that she was a feminist icon because she was constantly like turning into a cartoon character or falling downstairs or talking to cartoon babies mm-hmm. and like wanting to have sex with guys in car washes like it's all Guess very what? sort of this is feminism too everyone it's a big is, tent yeah. we're coming in <laughs> that's kind of how it felt right yeah. where it's like you have david e kelly who a, a very you know obviously an enormous figure in television and and a guy who was able to write all sorts of different types of female characters for what it's worth. Like, I, I think that it's a, he's an interesting writer, but a feminist writer, not one that I would necessarily give that moniker to, which do is. Think, do you think David E. Kelly made a deal with some demon that if he doesn't write a TV episode a day, he will die. So he's just like writing legal <laughs> notepads full of like some show we'll never see I mean, every day. Truly. Well, I wondered if he has some kind of deal. And then like part of that deal is, because it's like a deal with the devil and often those deals are like sure. legal dramas. He's like writing out his own <laughs> devil legal drama every time. It's just would watch that show. He's I'd replaying in his head that what the defense attorney would say <laughs> to try to get his soul back, right? Would be so good. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. No. Um I, I just i do think it is interesting that Murphy Brown, which is you know, I don't want to say mired, but is existing in a very sort of politically fraught time it's certainly you know that 92 we're gonna talk about 92 but you know this episode that premieres the episode we're talking about is two months before the election in 1992 when clinton is gonna win and as predicted by my second grade class vote by the way oh really yeah (laughs) but i do think it's kind of fascinating that I have not seen the entire run of this show. You guys have. But the episodes I watched, and I watched four episodes. I watched the pilot. I watched the finale of season four and the premiere of season five. She's taken all sorts of pot shots at, at Republicans, like pretty just, you know, all. Just, and I was just like, is that a hallmark of this show as well? Like Republicans are idiots. Is that basically one of the things too? <laughs> they they did do a fair number of like Bill Clinton is a sleazy oh, horn dog jokes, but like they yeah, it's very much weighted toward making fun of Republicans. I think a thing that is true of political culture in the nineties is that it's lower stakes. The Cold War is over, but we haven't yet entered the heavy polarization of the twenty first century. So like there's this idea that oh, we can all laugh at how stupid Dan Quayle is, uh, or you know, we can all laugh at how Bill Clinton, you know, is is a horn dog. But, you know, I, I think I think that that was not as true as the show would have suggested. The roots mm. of the polarization we live through now are being planted in the 90s. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. like Rush Limbaugh's coming to the fore and Fox News. And they are mentioning all- like the Middle East. Like she's making some some oh, shots yeah. about that. A too. lot. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I yes, I think I think Emily is is I would agree with Emily's 
general assessment of this idea that like you can have like James Carville and Marley Matlin like on TV like mm -hmm. is that what is but no Marley Matlin's not the what what's his what's no? her name yeah what's her name Marley Matlin the no, woman Marley he married no the, the woman, woman he married whose name sounds like Marley Matlin but isn't James oh, Carville and on. his wife who's a Republican Mary Mary James Carville let's see who his wife is they would be on TV and they would be like talking heads against each other and he was the Democrat and she was the Republican yeah. Mary sort of... Madeline okay, very so you close can, you're very you can close. see my problem <laughs> yes, yes yes but they would be like next to each other on TV yeah. and it would be like they're married, but they're on opposite sides of the spectrum and they're going to fight. Sure, and it's sort of like sure. fun back and forthiness in a way that does not feel like right now, if you were to run that segment, it would be like, and here's why they're not getting divorced. We swear. Right. right. Like yeah. that's the only way you could have that kind of. Um, Plus I've the seen... husband and wife on different political parties has been how many television shows? Like, I feel like yeah. I've that pitch has been said a million times and it's definitely the, been on TV. The literal yeah. next show Diane English makes, the show she leaves Murphy Brown to do is Jay Thomas and I think Annie Potts. It's called Love and War. And oh, they are right. Republican and Democrat and they're married and they have these pol politics that don't work, but they're just, they just want to fuck. And yeah. like, that's, yeah. you know, that's how the long premise. did that run for? Three seasons. It was oh, behind. Right. It was behind Murphy, and then they moved it, and of course, it lost course all its yeah. audience. And wait, and Jay Thomas shows up as am I crazy? Like, as like, like a, her yeah. ex or something like that. He's like, like the a father love, yeah. of her child, I think. Um, well, so she has an ex, and his brother is her lover, and so you're not actually clear which one of them is the interesting. Father. Okay, sure. Uh, it, it should be said on the Candace Bergen side of things, she wins five Emmy awards for outstanding lead actress in a comedy series for this show. And am I correct that I, I have a vague recollection of a year that she took herself out of consideration so Helen Hunt could win from Pat About You? Am I crazy? She just, she just stopped competing because she was like, I've won enough awards. I don't need to win anymore. You y'all can have fun. Like Okay. Yeah. So Plus, and then specifically Helen Hunt wins the next year for Pat About You, which everyone kind, felt like yeah, she was losing for. There was kind of this like John Larroquette set this expectation of you win so many Emmys and then you quit. And she like set the record. She like, I think she beat Mary Tyler Moore and she was like, okay, I'm done. And now like right. that, that expectation kind of doesn't exist anymore. Also TV shows don't, you know, don't have the, that sort of run. So it's less of a concern. Sure. Uh, yeah. So she, she starts her career, obviously she's in features in the late sixties. Um, I feel like Carnal Knowledge is the movie that kind of, I don't want to say puts her on the map, but the movie that kind of, or at least the biggest movie I can kind of see here in terms of uh her her feature career um she's in a lot of movies movies that i i didn't know she was in gandhi for instance your favorite movie emily gandhi uh one of the things about it, the book um oscar wars which is mm -hmm. uh, i don't remember who wrote it but like there's a long there's a whole chapter in that about gregory peck's attempts to make the academy younger and like his mm. his like point of reference for what the young people like was candace bergen sure because she had grown up in this world candace bergen was kind of just famous for being famous for a while like she was right. the child right. of a famous person and she was beautiful so now she's famous she has like a weird connection to the manson murders candace she bergen does? yes oh, wow. the house that uh the <laughs> house that uh sharon tate and roman polanski were renting they were renting from candace bergen and her boyfriend and Okay. Like Charles Manson was mad at her boyfriend. So there is some like oh, speculation wow. that he was going after Candace Bergen and just like 
you know, That's she was not there. Crazy. <laughs> uh, it, in features, it feels like in the kind of 2000s, she becomes the mom to the guy of our protagonist sort of thing. Like, she's like uh, Patrick Dempsey's mom in Sweet Home Alabama. She feels like she's kind of in this Sometimes she's like a moms. lady president, you know, <laughs> that sort of a... Sure, sure, yeah. sure. She's in The Women, which is uh, Diane English's remake of uh, the classic film um, in 2008, which had like Meg Ryan, Annette Benning, Ava Mendes, Deborah Messick. Everyone was in this thing. Uh, and I don't think anyone... Did anyone see that movie? Was that a movie that existed? It killed Diane English's career. Like, yeah, literally, it was just like, yeah, no, no one saw it. And like... Yeah, just I, I feel I I I for whatever issues I have with Murphy Brown, I think Diane English is like this groundbreaking figure, sure, and sure, uh, sure. she just kind of like it never happened for her again, and uh, that's you know too bad. <laughs> it is too bad, but I I mean I I think that you know Candace Bergen on television because of Murphy Brown is obviously this enormous icon. She, as you mentioned, shows up in a ninety-two episode of Seinfeld which is kind of amazing, called The Keys. Um, she obviously is on Sex and the City as Enid Frick. She does three episodes of that. And then she's in like 84 episodes of Boston Legal. <laughs> like she's just, I mean, she's just working. Yeah, she's make also- that money. Make that get paper. that money. Yeah. She's also great in Let Them All Talk, the Soderbergh film that came out during the pandemic with mm-hmm. Meryl Streep. Like she's still an amazing actor. I don't mean to qualify that by saying still, but like she's, you know, she's getting up there. But it, it is just, I don't know that that people, certainly millennials or Gen X, have a fair assessment of how iconic and how great an actor she is. Um, I mean, which is just sad, but that's just what it well, is. Well, I mean, yeah, because uh, other than let them all talk, where I do feel like that conversation did happen yes, a little bit yes, yes. um yeah she's in that like like uh, book club kind of she's like yes, one of the wacky yes. old ladies and they You're go right. and they yeah. you know yeah. she wasn't as far as i know in the one where the old women go like tom brady but you know she's not an 80 for brady <laughs> but you could imagine like she yes. would have been in conversation yes. for a film like that and yes. that's kind of the way and then she's like the the weird the horrible one on on the sex in the city like you know that that yes. whole yes um pocket and it does not fully encompass the like long history of who this person it doesn't is. i kind of fucking love book club though the first one. <laughs> oh i yeah. certainly did not mean to denigrate the book club i didn't think film. you did like did you the see book the club second sim- chapter emily I, no. I didn't no it okay. was it came and went um i need well, to though. i need to watch it on um, you go to it came and went time, from my right? local theater yeah so your local theater yeah, well, I have a theater. I have a theater like three blocks from me that I see everything at, and they don't get okay. everything. Like they never got Sound of Freedom, which is how I don't know what freedom sounds like. But oh, someday um, you will. Obviously, it's a shame. <laughs> uh, I so yeah, Book Club. The next chapter came out uh, in May of 2023. Uh, this year, I think it did relatively well, all things this considered. Year? I mean, wow, it was this year. It actually didn't do that great. It cost twenty million. It made twenty seven. I think that people maybe were just like over book club. I don't know, but she's in people it. Just you know what? They need to start doing the book club spinoffs. The thing it, is, it, they didn't make movies about the individual four women in the book club, yeah. and yeah. then have them come back together. You know, like that a cinematic been. universe, if you will. Well, yeah. or like the romance novel. That's the way any romance oh, series. Yes, would have that's done smart. It, right? that's perfect. Smart. Yes. Yeah, perfect. Yes. Um, so, in terms of this episode that we are talking about today, you say potato, <laughs> I say potato, one with an e. Um, 
the episode synopsis for what it's worth after the deliver after the delivery murphy goes through her period of adjustment to motherhood interviewing nannies trying to decide on a name for the baby and trying to get a good night's sleep this episode was written by stephen peterman gary donitz i don't know how do you say his name corby simas again these are all really hard names uh and directed by peter I don't want to say boners, but I think it might be. It's Peter Boners. Peter oh, Boners, Boners sure. Yeah. Give it a little, a little je ne sais quoi, if you will. Uh, 44 million people watched this episode <laughs> of television. Well, it was yeah. so hyped. It like, was. But still, that's a lot of people. I mean, it was like the news story of like the, the yeah. summer. Like it was, it was enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Can we, can we all agree this episode is padded and did not need to be uh, an hour long episode of television or Yes. Uh, yes. I, there are parts of this episode that are, I, that are padding that I am nevertheless like happy sure, are here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, should we talk about like what this yeah. episode is and why Absolutely, it exists? Please. Before yeah, we get yeah, into yeah. The Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, please. so in the, in the season four finale, mm-hmm. Murphy has a baby. Um, and this she is does. a huge deal because mm-hmm. she has decided to, uh, to continue a pregnancy, uh, although she is well over 40 and not married. Um, In the premiere episode of this show, which was four seasons ago, it says, like, she's over 40. So by the time she has this baby, you know, like, she's she's definitely not uh, young. And she's not married. She's not in a romantic relationship or any kind of partnership. And she decides to have this have this child. Um, it is a continual like question and she's worried about what her career is going to be like over the course of the fourth season. She has the baby in the, uh, in season four finale. There's a really moving, just lovely, uh, home video footage style shot ending scene where she sings, you make me feel like a natural woman to the baby, which is also a callback to the pilot because she sings that song in the pilot. You're just like overcome with this big, I mean, the TV is like, I can imagine what the TV guide covers looked like, right? About this episode, just huge deal. And then over the summer, Dan Coyle, real life political figure and vice president of this country. Known intelligent man. Very, very, yeah. Known as a brilliant scholar. That's correct. Dan Coyle also famous for not knowing how to spell the word potato. Yeah. Uh, that he, clip is one of the best TV clips you'll ever see. If Our listeners should go on YouTube to see him scold a child <laughs> and tell him he's spelling potato wrong. <laughs> it's... Wish, don't you, I, I have such incredible nostalgia for like the moment of our political lives where like that was a big deal yeah. that like mattered also. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> It's great. It's wonderful. Uh, anyway, anyway yeah. in the middle of like a much longer speech, this yes. is not like the point of the speech. It's just like <laughs> one line in a bigger speech about the dissolution of family values and like how this country is falling apart. Sure. He says, and you have Murphy Brown out here making a mockery. I can't remember. We'll, we'll find yeah. sure we yeah, have yeah. the exact quote somewhere. I have the quote, it's yeah. like making a mockery of like traditional family values. Mm-hmm. And so then <laughs> it's like a whole summer of press that's like Dan Quayle versus Murphy Brown, fictional character Murphy Brown, which is 
it's and, insane talk about picking a, a ridiculous fight but yeah and they're up for emmys that year they win yes. several they win comedy series candace bergen wins and it's just like you read the the press coverage of those emmys and it's just about dan quayle it's yeah. the most it's the most 1992 thing imagine i mean you huge. even have bush yes basically being like they they have a clip of him as well where he's where he makes some sort of you know offhanded joke about how i'll take another question about murphy brown it, it's amazing how much it swallowed what feels like the the waning months of his campaign for president he's fighting a fictional character it's insane it's insane. It's absolutely <laughs> insane. And so then, of course, like, all right, you're coming back for season five. She's a new mom. Uh, the vice president of the United States has picked a fight with your fictional character, but also with, which I think is important, like, the whole idea of her and, like, what your whole show has been about and the whole premise of, like, what you are trying to do in culture. But he's just, like, I think accurately in that respect, chosen a, like the exact right tar. Like this was the thing. This was yeah. precisely what she was trying to be. Uh, so, like, what do you do with your returning television show? Yeah, I mean, it's it's handed to you. Like, there's no there's there's no world where the writers' room or literally the showrunner sees these clips and is like, well, this is just you're handing me this. Yeah, I mean, I have to take it. And but I also another, don't know yeah. that it that it's the best caveat for an episode for a premiere of a show well in another show where it was not already very embedded in like yeah. political coverage like regular back and forth with like real world political events mm -hmm. i think you might have sat and thought a little bit longer about like how exactly right. we are going to incorporate this yeah. into the world of the show there is an element of it that's like we already do this this is kind of a gimme like let's just mm -hmm. go that you can kind of feel to the construction of this episode um but it is i mean in spite of, I agree with you, not being the best episode of television ever, just a wild thing to watch. It's wild to watch. I mean, it's it made me think about, and this sounds weird, but bear with me for a second. Do you remember when, like, Contact, the movie, got in trouble for using Bill Clinton's footage in the, uh, he, in the press conference, he was talking about something that they found on Mars, or I don't mm. remember what it was, yeah. but they took his words out of context and used it in the context of contact and like the administration was not thrilled about that um i was think i forgot i thought you were talking about the movie closer and i was like when is bill clinton in closer <laughs> no, it's such a weird a choice movie. but i i just it it makes me think about how i mean obviously you can do whatever you want this is i assume this is public domain footage right like once it's out in the world you can manipulate it kind of however you want um the funny part about this is the all there's no manipulation like they, they don't literally, have to it's just it's right there for them. i mean yeah. this is this is also like this is the period when republicans are like picking a war with big pop culture a war i would argue they eventually kind of succeed at but this is the opening days of that because you, you know george hw bush is like we want more families like the waltons and less like the simpsons a thing the simpsons responds to and that's a show that like like can bend reality a lot more than yeah. most shows yeah. but it's very much like you know and obviously simpson is like a common last name but it's still very weird when homer simpson's like what the hell and yeah ah uh, a thing that it's, i think yeah a thing that i think it's left out of the dan quayle narrative is he was doing a racism he was like at this speech that was about like the decay of family values and what he meant by that was like 
black single mothers. But then he talked about a fictional white lady and everyone was like, whoa, no. And like um, in the the episode of uh, Primetime, my old podcast, in which I Mm -hmm. recorded under a very strange name. I don't know why I did that. Um, that? Like we talked with a scholar about that and then also with Diane English. And it was just like Dan Quayle was trying to make an entirely different point that was racist in its like very core And it got distracted by this conversation about a white lady and ultimately like a fictional white lady. And ultimately like that was one of the things that led to his defeat in the presidential election. But the larger thing of we're going to use pop culture to make racist points that like don't seem racist because we're talking about white people is like a strategy that Republicans pick up and like run. No, totally. It, it, It should also be said too, that like, he tries, they try, and I can only imagine in a myriad of ways to try to kind of round the edges off of this situation and try to like be playful about it. Where like President, uh, sorry, Vice President Quayle sends fictional baby Avery a real plush toy elephant. Yeah. And I'm just like, what world are we living in now? We're sending gifts to fictional characters to try to make it seem like we're not callous. Well, I mean, there's something I really love about that because it is kind of playing on the same field, the same incredibly non-real field that he he himself created by, like, (laughs) saying it in the first place, right? Right, So, like, why not pretend? I mean, given the news cycle, she is essentially as real or functionally more real than any real person could have been. There is this way... It's my favorite thing about fiction. Like, because it is fiction, we are able to access it and, like, grapple with reality in ways that, like, we can't when something is actually real because the facts are too – they don't fit and, like, the narratives aren't clean enough. And so, actually, it is a lot easier to talk about all of these kinds of things when you can talk about a fictional version rather than, you know, the actual factual uh, frustrating thing. Uh, So, yeah, like, send a fake baby an elephant. I don't care. That's fine. It's all about the gesture anyway. Like, the whole thing is just – about yeah. rhetoric and gestures and and uh how it gets covered um well and as you said like you've created a you've created a another reality anyway i guess you can send an elephant to that reality if you want fine i mean we all remember when mike pence sent Amelia clark like a fake like a like a stuffed yeah. dragon and was like yeah. sorry for your loss queen you know right. like we called her mother i believe but yeah yeah I mean, so, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, i mean it's it, it is it's bizarre. It does feel like, I mean, Emily and I have existed in this 1992 journey together for, for a while now, and it does feel like a different world in so many ways. And obviously, in many ways, far worse than the world we live in, and in other ways, very quaint and kind of oddly idealistic. Mm-hmm. But Emily, I do you look like honestly, you... Uh... <laughs> I honestly had not really thought about how different it was, you know, watching all the movies this made me be like oh what the fuck like watching tele- tv yeah, baby yeah. watching That's television TV is for. <laughs> watching television of a time period of a certain time period is just yeah. like like being dropped into Crazy. it and like you know i think the more that we try to make tv quote-unquote cinematic like the more we lose that quality which is what's totally. great about tv that like i'm obviously you know um uh i don't care i think that shows that are some of those shows that are more movie-like in their construction are great and some of them are you know wonderful balance but yeah yeah, you need to have a a show that reminds me a lot of murphy brown in a lot of ways is superstore which sadly left us and it's just like that show 
I for loved a long time. Though. That show ran for six seasons. That show I loved that it was like every week it was like a thing that they were dealing with. And it like if you watch it now, like it's already starting to slip a little bit into the past. And um the Connors does some of that too. But like the thing that streaming has taken from us is that element because streaming is constantly trying to like make it seem like you could watch this at any point in time. Well, it and it is often totally unmoored from when like it was written it was shot it was first of all it was written completely in one chunk then it was shot without being written at the same time which is all of these shows are written in this like cycle where it only comes out like three weeks or a month after you wrote it so that the 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 freshness of it is much closer and then uh, even farther from the writing is when it, whoever, whenever it comes out in front of an audience, it could be a year or two years, even longer before That's anyone smart. actually sees it. So it's totally yeah. unmoored from that specific texture of the moment that it was written, which also means that I'm sure people who are writing are trying to be like, well, I can't make it like too specific because like, who knows if this particular right. thing is still going to be the thing in two years or and all of also, that kind of stuff. It's yeah. also like now there's this real fear of like the country is so deeply polarized. If you make a Trump joke, are you turning off a ton of viewers? Are you like, and also now Trump's not president. Why are you making a Trump joke? You know, it's like this, this delicate balancing act that like, I think when TV was more immediate, I'm I'm looking at um, a show that overlapped with Murphy Brown. It's one of my favorite sitcoms. Everybody loves Raymond. Um, its first couple seasons were up against the last couple seasons. Were after the last couple seasons of Murphy Brown, I think something like that. After, yeah, and I, I just mean like aired after at yeah. one point. Um, and that show tried to be timeless. That show tried to be, we're going to tell a story that you could tell at any time. And it is, you watch it now and it's like, yeah, this was made in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's just like yeah. inescapable. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, I, we're also talking about a format that doesn't exist as much as it used to, which is the multicam. A shame. We, a shame. It, and, and I do think that it does feel, I don't know what it is. I'm not a comedy writer, so I, I'm, I'm sure that a comedy writer could, could, maybe explain this to be better but i don't know why we have struggled to keep that format alive like i know that the single cam seems more uh filmic or whatever the case might be not as just an aesthetic thing that happens with trends right so there's that right And, and it is very interesting to me that like when you look at the fact that gen z and millennials can't watch enough friends like truly cannot watch enough of that show and so many of them so, grew up on disney channel nickelodeon sitcoms 100%. which are that's true, exactly. sweet life of zach and cody right so what are we doing like how is it possible that there isn't some cool hip you know youthful writer out there that wants to do that now I just, well I, phil I just, I'm, I'm glad you asked oh yeah <laughs> i did like i did so much work on this issue over the course of my career as a critic i did a lot of reporting on it i think there's a bunch of different issues that are at play here one is that executives just don't think those shows are cool they're not the shows that executives want to watch the second is that the multicam to some degree relies on a shared sense of reality that we no longer have it relies on the broadest possible jokes chuck lorry was like the last like vestige to mogul of that and like his his shows increasingly just became sex jokes because he was like sex is like a thing we all still understand yeah there wasn't why yeah sitcom it's it's why stand-up uh comedians always end with like the sex joke at the end because that's the big thing that you can end and it's like what if you had to take your closing joke but it was your whole show yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. And there's like no shared political reality, nor is there a shared pop cultural reality. So Chuck Lorre's just like, I guess we all have to like, you know, do things with sex sometimes. 
Um, there's mm. also okay. this element of friends sets up an unrealistic expectation of being able to have all hot people in your show and have them all be That's funny, true, which is true. not true. Whereas yeah. you look at a show like the, like Seinfeld is the show that immediately precedes mm -hmm. it. Those are like distinctive looking people. Even yeah. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's beautiful, is a distinctive looking person. Sure. Um, and, uh, the kind of the last thing is this is something a writer once pointed out to me the people who come to hollywood to write television want to write films now it used to be they were playwrights and playwrights are great at writing uh multi-cams mm -hmm. and now there's just not as many playwrights or if there are they're getting shuttled into drama you know there's a lot of great well that's that's things. the thing i mean yeah I, the, the playwright thing having worked in an agency um for for several years when i first moved out here the the playwright thing for agents is like such a coup because you can get some cool hot playwright and showrunners who I guess have this self-hatred of what they do want to incorporate playwrights because theater is real writing and what mm -hmm. we do is bullshit um, or so they think. So it's like, you'll have shows that get packed with playwrights, none of which know how to write television. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I guess we need actual TV writers. I mean, I had been trying to be a TV writer for like a decade and then I wrote a novel and everyone was like, you must know how to write television. And I, right, I was right. like, well, what I really want to do is be a low level staff writer on a basic yeah, cable drama, a pay cable had, drama. <laughs> it's had this identity crisis since its earliest days. It's one of the yeah. most fascinating yeah. things about this medium. Um, um, but what's yeah. interesting though, just to, to come full circle to some degree is that I think that multicam is theatrical. It's why play rights are good at writing that because it's in front of a live audience more times than not they understand just the the, the rhythm of it is so similar to theater um it's a shame that we're weirdly getting away from that but anyway i, I think i think the multi-camera sitcom this is a slight hyperbole, but only slight. I think the fall of the multi-camera sitcom is why we have a polarized country. No, I'm I'm with you. Uh, I believe Norman Lear. That. Norman Lear was like the person who sure. was holding this whole country together. I mean, the yeah. '60s was not a great time, like political <laughs> polarization-wise, and yet yeah. we still lived in a shared reality. Is it a is it a complete coincidence that All in the Family was on? I don't think so, uh, and that like everyone had to watch it because. There was only three shows and that part of it's bad because only white people and white men could make shows like that is its own element of it sure but yeah. but uh we could all sit and watch archie bunker and some of us misread it but uh, most of us did not and america made it a couple more decades and then we lost I, the same like, i do think yeah Sorry, uh, like the one of the other things is like I think the multi-camera sitcom is a safe space for people to yes. get used to ideas they've never heard before. Yes. There's this like it's totally. possibly just like causation is not correlation, but I really genuinely believe the study that famously tracks the acceptance of marriage equality against the run of Will and Grace, and it just like goes. Mm -hmm. So like Will and Grace, if you are a gay man uh, living in 2023, a lot of people have problems with that show with Jack sure. the character, and I think that's fair. But to some degree, the multi-camera sitcom is built atop stereotypes. I know if there was a multi-camera sitcom with a trans woman in it, I'd be like, what the fuck are they doing? But like they would use a broadly stereotypical character and get you to like sort of laugh at their stereotypical traits. But then there would be like this person has humanity. And it's like this weird like like yeah. like sort of sleight of hand thing that the multicam can do that no other TV genre can. And I think the loss of it has been. I mean, I wrote this article at Vox a long time ago, based sort of based around the Carmichael show yeah. and um, once one day at a time and mm. all of these, there was like a run of politically conscious sitcoms at that time. And then, you know, they all kind of left the air. They all kind of failed. Um, and uh, I do think, you know, I think I think it's just this thing where 
there's a whole segment of i mean there's a whole segment of the populace where if you like make fun of donald trump you they assume that you're like personally making fun of them and like you just can't you can't can't do that kind of broad-based comedy in that environment for all its faults the roseanne revival briefly did and briefly tried and like uh that was interesting and then you know roseanne was not a great person weirdly turns out not great i do think though it is interesting because i feel like this episode speaks to everything you guys are talking about as well right now admittedly there aren't as many channels on in 1992 but 44 million people watched a pretty overtly political episode of television um and my assumption is that republicans and democrats were able to watch this and both get something out of it and i think that that speaks to what you guys are talking about which is i don't know if it's the multicam i think that's definitely part of it but I also just think in general, the country wasn't as divided. They were able to kind of make fun of themselves. It's not a surprise that, you know, the 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 leader of the Republican Party right now is a man who cannot laugh at himself. So none of his followers can take a joke either. It, all of this speaks to what you guys are talking about, which is, you know, it, I don't even know if it's division so much as it's literally Trump making sure that these people feel the way he feels, which is that you know, uh, a victim all the time and I mean, angry about it. I mean, the polarization that became really obvious under Trump had been building for a long yeah. time. Absolutely. And you're Absolutely. seeing the, er- the early roots of that in this episode. Someone made fun of me for the way I say roots the other day, and I'm not going to stop saying it the way I say roots. I grew I like up in it. the upper like Midwest. Um, but uh, yeah, you can like you, the end of this episode is kind of a thinly veiled Rush Limbaugh reference. Sure. And like, that's, you know, it's, it's the rise of this, the real thing that, that the real thing that changes all of this is Bill Clinton repeals the fine sign laws. And like, yeah. also uh, Reagan repeals the fairness doctrine. Yeah. I think it was Reagan. And like, yeah. so suddenly there's this right wing media ecosystem that yeah. eventually becomes a self-sustaining bubble. And now they like have their own movies and TV shows. And like, you never have to leave that bubble. And like, in 1992, you had to leave that bubble to continue to exist in the world. Right. And Murphy and Brown exists. Same... Yeah, go ahead. And then at the same time, streaming algorithms created bubbles for everyone right. in this right, sense. Right. That, like you only ever see the thing that the computers think that you want to see when you turn on any of your screens. And so. And, and shows not needing, you know, shows being sort of calculated in such a way. And I don't even mean now. I, I mean, even 10, you know, 10, 12 years ago, where you could have a show that gets a million, two million viewers of dedicated fans. And that was fine. It still is fine. I mean, who knows what the numbers are for streaming? Because we'll never know. But I do hey, think that's that, what we're on strike for. We're on strike right. specifically yeah. to learn the but, numbers. But I of- think there is something to that. And, and I, I, it is a double edged sword. I mean, as a, as, a, as a fan of television, if a show can be so specifically aimed at me, how is that necessarily a bad thing? It makes you feel rewarded. At the same time, I think the universality of what used to exist is getting lost. And I think that they're learning this the hard way. And one of the myriad of reasons we're on strike right now is because of this, which is that I, I, the specificity actually doesn't really help you in the long run. And you actually do need things that are a bigger tent. Again, a balance. Like it would be great if there were a couple of big tent show or like more big tent shows Mm -hmm. that existed and that weren't, you know, 
Law and Order SVU, sure. um, because this is the other element of this is that there is still a kind of a large tent, and it is yeah. police procedurals and like, sure. and that has nothing to do with the brokenness of our or like culture. Abbott Elementary and Ghosts or whatever. Like there are there right. are a couple, but there yeah, are it's... a very couple, and I I mean yeah. the success of Abbott is also like you could it it is unfortunately the one the yeah. one that you the point one. to and you're like see <laughs> see it could work and everyone's like I don't know how we could ever do this again though like that's just that possible yeah yeah and like i think the success of yellowstone while that show is deeply flawed and like it is very much it is very much existing in a world where taylor sheridan is talking about things that people care about and is like does have he has much thornier more interesting politics than people assume and but it also is kind of a show we cannot turn this into a politics of yellowstone yeah we can't do politics of yellowstone we can politics we're doing it it's too much podcast like it's 2019 Um, I guess like it's Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, but yeah, I think there is this room. I, you know what, honestly, uh, this is not television, but you look at Barbie and Oppenheimer and they are two giant things. Everybody's going to see and everybody's like wrestling with, you know, basic tenets of feminism. And should we have dropped the atomic bomb, which are like big questions to be thinking about, honestly. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Pretty big. it, It is. It is interesting. I mean, there's no question that the landscape of television right now is huge it's incredibly broad and that is in and of itself a good thing like i I don't mean to suggest that i want four channels again and to become incredibly universal and perhaps a little bit too myopic at times but i do think that looking at these episodes watching the finale of season four which is it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. this kind of breaks format a little bit in terms of all the kind of talking head stuff. Like it, it maybe predates all, all of the various documentary shows that we now have, but we have sort of this, this beautiful kind of interstitial thing of Frank filming our leads as they're talking to the unborn Murphy's unborn child, um, which did make me kind of go like, it was a little jarring to think about like what audiences must've thought of something like that. I feel like you, both of you know the history of television better than I do. And I'm sure that there are any number of shows that have broken the format prior to this, but that's pretty bold to do in 92. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel like when we come back for the season five premiere, you're feeling a little less of that. It doesn't feel as special. Um, I, I guess my question to you both is, do you not think that the season four finale could have been a series finale? Like that it should have perhaps just been 
No, can't have been. Because the whole point is that she's working, right? Like, like this is like okay. the career story has to be the Murphy story. Like, you cannot end with her holding a baby and being like, right. "I'm a woman now." Like that, right. that You're cannot totally be the fair. button on totally cannot be the fair. button on this show. But emotionally, like I, I completely see what you're saying about the way that um, they were able to find fictional experimentation to signal that something unusual and special was happening sure. uh it's time for my favorite soapbox the episode which is a thing <laughs> that lets you say hey we're gonna do a different format right now and it's not gonna break the rest of the show and everyone sure. understands that in 1992 because northern exposure is out here doing god knows what crazy <laughs> ass shit sure. for an hour yeah. and then you come back and you're like hey it's still northern exposure china beach moonlighting like twin fucking peaks all of <laughs> This stuff was out here saying like yeah for one hour we get to do whatever the fuck we want and then we're going to come back and there's a status quo and then we can do different shit and so yes the 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 de using deploying sort of interesting format breaking episode stuff for this ep for that season finale um feels very tv language to me and also does exactly what you're talking about it's like signaling this kind of special special moment you know Unlike yeah, I just, yeah, so go ahead, you I'll, say I'll potato, I say potato with an E, or I say potato, you say potato with an E, is not a bottle episode. Not to return to your favorite I was going to say, but, I, I wonder if Catherine has thoughts on the bottle episode. But it contains one thing that makes many, many people confuse it with a bottle episode, which is Dan Quayle talking about the main character by name, as so many 100%. bottle episodes That's do. That's a yeah. constant, and I'm just perpetually saying, if Dan Quayle is talking about your character, it's just not a bottle episode, guys. I have to add it to the, I, to the list. I, first of all, I, I could not agree with you more, Catherine, in terms of episodic television. Um, the idea of, and, and I think that there really does need to be a distinction between episodic television and procedural television. I think that a lot of people think those are similar. They're well, not. They're, they often come together, but they're not the same. But they're not the same thing, correct. And, and I do think that um, one of my many hopes on the other side of this strike with ad supporting and all sorts of stuff is that I think we're going to get larger episode orders as well. I think short runs are also not helping television either because you're burning through story far too quickly. Um, but yes, I'm really looking. No episode, no episode orders should be under 13. I feel I like, agree. I feel like we found this. I mean, I obviously there are exceptions. I would not want to watch a, a, a 22 episode flea bag. I think it would lose some of its like power at sure. that length, but like, but I do well. But yeah. British model is also yeah. a slightly yeah. different. It's also yeah, very yeah. strange, yes. Yeah. But um, uh, I do think that like there was this period when everyone was like, well, we should make TV like the Brits. They make it better. And the reason we think that is because we only get their best shows. If you actually go to Great Britain and watch their television, there's this all kinds so of true. crap there. <laughs> like, um, but uh, yeah, I do. I obviously there should be some shows that have less than thirteen episodes. But I do think we found this like kind of perfect length for a TV drama season, serialized TV drama mm -hmm. season of like twelve to thirteen episodes. And then we were like, what if we took more episodes out of it? Obviously, I love when there's like a Lost or an X Files that runs a whole bunch of episodes and has kind of a serialized story sprinkled in there. But like, if you want to do the kind of tight tighter yeah. thing i think 13 is perfect because then you do get a couple hours to kind of like like I sopranos agree. always did yeah around I, I also think i mean it, you, you were talking about the bottle episode or you're talking about breaking of format episodes and and you know when you're sitting in a in a writer's room and you know a a, a sort of formula has been built for your television show it gets tiresome right so writers want to do something exciting and want to do something weird and i think most of the time that's exciting and you see it in the 
fucking narrative that comes off of Twitter or social media. Whenever a show does something really exciting and new, people get excited about it. And and I, I just which is well, a different whatever, way of which saying is excited. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> which is a different way of saying. Remember excited. how mad people got about Fly? That great Breaking yeah. Bad episode. I mean, how crazy so is that? Mad. That aired the same night as the Lost series finale. If you want to just like oh, wow. be at a moment, two episodes wow. that people were famously normal about. Yeah, totally normal about. I I mean, God, it it is. I love that. Yeah. I do think, though, also part of this is people didn't have the opportunities to speak out about television in the same way, right? So you you could talk to your friends about it, or you could, you know, shake your fist at the sky on your front lawn if you were angry about an episode of television. You could write a letter, a you could write, letter. Which people did a lot. Um, but now, I mean, Emily, you've talked about this a little bit about sort of, you know, your uh, message boards were sort of the first wave of all of this right of people being able to find common groups so you could all kind of bitch and complain or be happy about television shows now the fact that you can tweet at someone is pretty fucked up (laughs) i remember like i remember um when arden the podcast i made for two seasons Mm -hmm. when it was like suddenly had this audience of people and they would just occasionally say stuff and i'd be like that was a creative decision we made. Yep. You don't just yep. get to say that we were bad. Yep. Like you, yep. you can you can disagree with that decision, but you can't just assume that we had no idea what we were doing. And then I was like, oh no, I've become <laughs> you become your lemon lemon dot com lemon yeah. lemon dot com. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, but yeah. now you know, like I I was very very early in on the Yellow Jackets fandom, and now like so I was like in the subreddit and everything, and now every time Reddit's like, you used to read a lot of this. Let's look, and I'm like, no, I can't. I need to run far away i can't yeah you can't know anything about it yeah Yeah. i mean i i do think though looking at at imagining what murphy brown like and i'm not talking about the revival like this show if this show existed i'm gonna see if there's a murphy brown subreddit continue (laughs) (laughs) i bet i'm sure there is but i it it does feel like a show that probably would have been a bit of a lightning rod in that way because if it was already yeah you know what i mean if dan quayle and murphy brown are on you know cover pages of magazines and newspapers i just can't even imagine what people would do with something like that today there is a there is an r slash murphy brown but it's a private community you have to ask to be invited yeah that's very nice well i i i would bet it's a private community because they're all sharing illegal links of how to actually watch this show so it can't actually (laughs) that's true too it's true uh can't actually be public yes i don't is it just music rights is that is that what we've is that that's one of the big reasons and like they put season one on DVD and like with the music intact and it was very expensive and it sold terribly. So they just never oh. did the rest, which yeah. is why the episodes we watched had a whole bunch of Nick at night bumpers in them. wonder yeah. how we got them. Mm. Who knows? Mm. It's Who impossible. No, it's very impossible to say. Uh, yeah. I, I do think though, you know, I talked earlier about the episode feeling padded a little bit and mm-hmm. I do feel like there's just stuff in it. I mean, I, listen, if I had an entire summer of, building up to the episode i'd want to do a two-hour special episode or a two-part big hour-long episode sure i get it you know milk your get your money where you can um and and i'm sure advertisers were couldn't wait to get their their commercials so i get all of that but there was stuff that as nice as it was like the frank scene Mm. um where he's teaching her how to hold the baby is a really nice scene and feels sort of counterintuitive to the frank 
stereotype of him being sort of this womanizer the fact that frank is a womanizer is hilarious the way frank looks and he's a ladies man in 1992 i would fuck frank i would fuck frank that guy (laughs) that guy has something just ineffable about him well so i wanted to talk about that specific scene because i think so i i I certainly did not watch this show contemporaneously because I was it was my bedtime. But um <laughs> the but I, I'm trying to remember when I first went back and like watched it as an adult. I think it was after I had kids. And pretty soon after I had my first kid, I think, because I remember I think I wrote something about it. And that shot early, not necessarily the Frank showing her how, which like it didn't need to be that long at all, that yeah. kind of stuff. But there's a shot earlier where the baby starts crying and she picks up the baby out of this cradle Mm -hmm. and is holding this baby in the way that you hold a cat who you think is going to claw you, right? (laughs) Like she is holding this baby in the way that makes anyone who's ever held a baby go, oh, God, ah, ah." (laughs) and I was sure it was a fake baby. And then you turn it around and like she is holding a real baby (laughs) In the most disconcerting, like I genuinely the way the light hits the baby's bald head makes it look so fake, and I was like, "Look so fake." Have we just had like really has has fake baby technology crumbled so far from the nineties? You're like, oh no, it's a real, it's a real. (laughs) No, but there's something like really, really powerful, like in like a brainstem way thing for me watching her hold that baby that way because Mm -hmm. actually, like that communicates so much more about like where she is in this moment Mm -hmm. in her life um than like any of the rest of what happens in that episode like i mean eventually yes you have to get the whole arc of it but the ability for her to go from oh god this baby to like Mm -hmm. holding the baby in a fairly natural like i am i do not think i'm gonna defuse a bomb kind of way uh, that's that's the story for me. Like that's the arc of the of the episode, um, and it speaks to also why the child is crying so much is yes. because the child is terrified that it doesn't have something to actually protect it and care for. Because it. it's dangling out in it's the middle of air. Right when I when I when I brought my child home, I did hold it about hold them above my head. Sure. Yeah, you, had, you got a lion house, king. Screaming. You got a lion king at least yeah. once. Yeah. Absolutely. I was just like, oh, I got this bomb here. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, 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 yes, yeah. But I, I, I don't mean to suggest that I that that the emotional arc of these two episodes, which is essentially Murphy starting to understand how to be a mom, mm-hmm. is lovely, and and I have no problem with that. I, I think that it just felt like it had air in it. You know what I mean? And it felt oh, like sure. it just it, it just yeah. could have been a a really tight twenty seven minutes. This isn't this but. is an amazing episode about a woman who never thought she'd be a mom figuring out how she's gonna be a mom and then also figuring out how to return to work and then in the middle they have to talk to Dan Quayle. Yeah, like <laughs> Yeah, the, the speech to Dan Quayle is incredible. And I, I do feel like that is kind of I guess that's almost an episode unto itself because mm-hmm. basically in part two, Murphy goes back to work and and scolds Dan Quayle through the through the television, um, basically saying, um, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but these are difficult times for our country. And in searching for the causes of this country's ills, we could choose the media or the Congress or the administration that's been in power for 12 years, or we could blame me, um, which which I mean, it's really well written. And, and, and 
you know, and then her saying perhaps the president, vice president should expand his definition of what a family means to him since they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, I do think that the, the message, I put that in quotation marks, but like the theme or the thesis of this episode is great. And I think that they do find a way, and Candace Bergen also said, I don't know when she said this, but also said that she didn't necessarily disagree with Dan Quill saying that men are not important to, you know, that, that fathers aren't important, which comes back to what you were saying earlier, Emily, which is that he was, it was all coded dog whistle bullshit and, and that it wasn't really about, you know, gender necessarily. But I do think that that's an interesting thing of that. This show does that dance that today would probably be impossible to do of, navigating landmines seeming not you know like some kumbaya moment but also feeling just funny and smart and it's pretty impossible what it was able to do at the time there's i can't put my finger on this so i just want to raise it as a point of discussion Catherine. uh, please if you just if you don't care about this talk about something else but uh, there's a thing in the the plotting about her dealing with her baby that just very it felt very clear to me that it was written by men and directed by a man and I can't quite it just was something with the way that they just didn't get some of the little details right some of that's like there's I mean, one woman yeah. there is one woman that wrote this I believe oh uh, really yes there uh her her name is forgive me uh Corby Simus is I believe a woman if I am not mistaken Corb not- Corb get on come on the pod Let's talk about this. No, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to point that out, not to say that sure. I think, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. That's why I want to, you yeah. know, see yeah. if there was a female voice involved in this. That yeah. did a pass, perhaps. No, I think you're right. I mean, it does. Um, the, the way that they write through her like exhaustion and the baby waking up over and over and the sort of like wisecracking at the baby as he continues to wake up um and the kind of it feels very uh like you're imagining a dad telling it at work later rather than the person who was actually like waking up and doing it over and over (laughs) and over again it doesn't have like speaking again from my own lived experience it doesn't have that thing where somebody opens the door and then you're like weeping and laughing at the same time and you literally can't say a sentence and you're like what is happening to like there is just a level of collectedness which i think makes sense for murphy as a character and for the way that this show tends to approach like serious issues like it tends to have that sort of safe humor remove but the thing you don't have when you have a newborn is a safe humor remove like you've lost it you're there's that you desperately wish you had that still but Mm -hmm. it's been skinned away um so yeah i can i can totally see that i also feel like a scene that i need to remove this cat i'll be right back (laughs) okay um a scene that i did feel like i don't know would be in the episode had it not been a two-parter is the scene when she goes back to work or tries to go back to work in a in a trench coat and a baseball mm-hmm. cap and is just desperate to escape from her home and from yeah. her child yeah um, which i think is handled really funny but also feels very um they needed sad a beat. too <laughs> they needed a yeah. beat well and 
So the episode that comes immediately after this is, of course, like rehashing a lot of this kind of stuff because then she actually does go back to work full time and then it's like nanny stuff and she feels nervous about the baby and like how does she balance. So you can tell that it was like, yeah, we're going to do that episode. We're just going to also kind of do it here to like build out a little bit more of what this has to be. And Eldon becomes the babysitter. Is that what happens or... Is sort there a babysitter of, hired? Yeah, so she hires a nanny. That It becomes a little secretary-like. Uh, Eldon then is the babysitter for a bit, and there's a nanny. And then the baby, as all good sitcoms, ba- sitcom babies do, becomes more talked about than ever seen again. Again, you know, like, bless them. I prefer that. Like, if you're going to do Murphy Brown, be Murphy right. Brown and, like, make a lot of jokes about how much you really hated going to your kid's second grade production of Showboat, which is a joke she makes later in this show. And I was like, no second grade is putting on. Emily's did. I think Emily, yeah. you were the lead in Showboat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think it was unfortunate because it was all white school, but uh, you know, we, uh, yeah, I was, no. I was no, but real story. I was in a pit orchestra for an all white production of Showboat, except for they got one kid to be uh, the guy who sings old man ringer. They had old man river. They had to get a black kid from a different high school. I mean, that's a better solution than it is a better solution yeah. than others would have been. <laughs> well, except then they also put wristbands on half of the white cast to show that they were actually black. Wristbands? No, sorry, like armbands. Oh, armbands! Like a wow, different time. It was a different time, guys. It was um, two thousand and two. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't. Wasn't that different? Michigan. Um, <laughs> I um, there are some great jokes in these episodes um i i did really like murphy she goes back to work and then she has to go home and she says old bessie has to get back to the barn for her milking um the the sadness with which she says that the resignedness of it um i do like when she says it's like having a conversation with a porpoise (laughs) like there are definitely some great jokes that Candace Bergen nails every one of them is the thing too where like even if the joke is kind of a b minus her delivery somehow gets it up to an a every time yeah it's a little funny watching because you know I have watched a fair number of the there's a whole genre of this kind of show now right there have been like there was a there's one called up all night there's working moms there's like a lot there's like a whole little subculture of these and the the mom as cow joke is like very familiar territory the you know the i feel like a insert like aquatic mammal here like all of all of this sort of stuff um but what you have to remember is like this was 1992 and it was murphy brown so just those jokes would have felt i think very different for an audience watching in prime time then than they do when you're like netflix has served me working moms because it knows because it knows right yeah uh the the joke that i laughed at where i was kind of ashamed to laugh at it was something like um I finally have a chest worth paying attention to. And the only man who will doesn't know what to do with it. And I was like, it's entirely because Candace Bergen is like perfect at delivering those jokes. She's just, yes. yeah, she just yeah. nails yes. them. She yes. really, yes. really does. Um, She's much so, better at it than I am. <laughs> so um, I, I did, as we sort of wrap this up, I wanted to ask outside of Murphy, who is your MVP hmm. character wise? interesting across the whole show or just these episodes both show okay. and these episodes I- i'm gonna go first just because i don't have as much invested in this it seems because you guys really want to chew on this which is totally fair yeah um the character that spoke to me the most that i thought was the funniest is miles um i, I think that grant is it showed showed i'm not sure how you say it. Shoud, it's I pronounce his last name 
um, just really in the pocket. It feels like I, his introduction, even in the pilot, you really are just sort of like, this guy gets this. And it's not, they're all very, very well drawn. You know, Jim is incredibly well drawn. Corky's obviously very well drawn. Frank, like they all are perfectly cast. They all kind of know their lane. Um, but there's something about him being so young and always over his skis and this idea of sort of the young male Harvard. executive. Yeah. 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 I just thought they, I thought they did a great job of making that feel um, fresh, which I imagine in 92, you know, whatever, it would have. Yeah. yeah. What about you guys? I, I, um, I just want to say, One of the things about this, this series that clearly indicates that it came from like the kind of feverish brain that becomes a great showrunner is just the whole device of Eldon. I was just going to say, Eldon is insane. How is he still, how did they milk that in terms of like. (laughs) The idea is, so like the idea was sort of like Murphy's going to face off against the conservative world. But then right. she's going to have this further left guy who's like here. He's like a burnt out hippie type. Right. And he paints her. He's painting her house for the whole run of the show until he does kind of become the nanny. But occasionally he'll be like painting a social like social commentary mural on one of her walls. And she's like, wow, that's great. And she like she really likes him and has this like comp like he's kind of the Wilson from home improvement of this show. Like Wilson right. from home improvement is really kind of a ripoff of Eldon. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that he's my favorite on the show outside of Murphy, but I think he's interesting. Um, I like, I guess. It's I'm just like... so sweaty to me because I'm watching the, the pilot. That's I'm the like, point. I, no, no, <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. But it, it is just kind of like, it's a, to your point, Emily, like it's underlining it and it's shining a bright light on it in order for you to kind of just get past how absurd it is that this man in overalls is just always there. Um and he's but there's great, also such but... a like long TV history of like landlord right. yeah, like yeah, neighbor yeah, characters. Totally. So there is a way that even though it is incredibly sweaty, you're like, oh, it's Kimmy Gibbler, or like, oh, it's like right, every right. other version of this. It is so tro- it um like when you do like a pant like a pantomime, like a classic right. old mm-hmm. English. Like there's like the this character and the this character and the this right. character. And so when he comes in, you're like guy, and he's a leftist, and he's painting like revolutionary yeah. murals. I mean, yeah. We all remember the season of Family Matters when Carl kept Urkel trapped in the basement. And, like, that that was the rationale for why Urkel was always there, because he couldn't escape. Like For real? That. <laughs> no, Phil. I, I, I don't know. I never watched Family Matters. Did you know that across the run of Family Matters, Urkel became a born-again Christian? That is true. That happened. Wow. I know that there was, like, he there was a time when he was cool, right? There was, like, they, they flipped it. He, like, he had, like a, like, a machine that turned him into Stefan Urkel. Urquell. Ste- oh Urquell. wow yeah, 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 yeah. i it's been a long time since i've watched this. let's do an urkel episode phil yeah i'm in uh i mean so favorite character i mean i do want to i want to speak i want to yes. i want to stand up for frank um okay. because i do think frank is a really Hot. crucial uh yes uh take off that toupee frank um i do think frank is a really crucial figure as far as like mm-hmm. what makes this show work he's like close emotionally to Murphy he often demonstrates like a softness that she doesn't it's not that it's fully like a gender swapped thing but that um but that you were able to see them having this 
platonic relationship sure. over the whole course of this show um and and the way that they are uh often competing for stories that feels healthy and fun and friendly i think is really effective the tenderness the you see in an episode like this i want to say i also went back and watched both strike episodes of murphy brown because i was like what happens when this show goes on strike and like in every case i mean by the second one like frank's out there with like signs and he's like teaching corky what a scab is and it's great it's great <laughs> television um so we stand up for our labor sure. king. yeah I, I i was gonna say frank as well i think frank is frank is a really interesting compelling character he's not as much a comedic type yeah he's kind of like there. He's have you have you seen Taxi Phil? I have. He's the Marilou Henner of Murphy Brown. Mm, he's That's there, interesting. He's yeah. there to be like kind there's kind of a romantic for some, but not really. And yeah. he's just there to be like, well, we all know that not all men are that way, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's mm-hmm. I God, he's hot. I want to marry Frank. Except I... then he'd just cheat on me and that would be sad. But I'd be fine with it. I'd be like, Frank. You got to do what you got to do. Emily, you could fix him. You could fix him. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I I do think Frank has a great moment. Frank has a bunch of great moments in the season four finale. But when he's pulling the things out of the bag that he picked up from her house for her, and it's just a series of uh, underwear and a stapler and some chicken from the fridge. And I mean, it's what's great about it and again like this is i think speaks to what you guys are talking about the specificity of the voice of his character mm-hmm. but just sort of how completely overwhelmed and and it's again like i this is part of the multicam thing i think which is that the characters can also be dialed up just a little bit more than they can be normally everyone's sort of existing on a like they're almost cartoon characters they never get to caricature and i think that in multi or sorry in single cam i feel like everything has to be just a little bit more grounded well and then you do the dialing up with like angles and stuff right, you right, don't right. get to do it in dialogue yeah. in yeah. you know performance in the same way no i I, I, are, I agree there are a number of single cam writers who have tried to launch multicams and failed in terms of like the network just like dan Harmon's done it i think a couple times and it's just yep. like i'm like i want to because i think dan Harmon understands the rhythms in his bones yeah. i want to see that happen i think you know what i also think would make a great multicam perhaps is um emily uh, st james liz, well obviously uh, i was gonna say liz merriweather um oh, I, yeah. I i feel like you know new girl had that kind of crackle to it like new girl i think could have straight up and she was a playwright so yeah yeah Yeah. it's yeah you know i was this is like a much more left field suggestion but i was talking with sterling harjo about reservation dogs and i was Mm. asking him like what tv he watched and like it was all multi-cams really and yeah (laughs) well because and so like i was trying to ask him about like what how does he think about like episode structure for that show and he is i mean he has a very specific like that is kind of what native storytelling is like these like little mm. tiny anecdotes that that ha- live in their own little bubbles which happens to map neatly onto that structure but like all of his tv rhythms are like he grew up with like you That's know multi-cam sitcoms and you know talking with him in dallas goldtooth about that show like i would so love to see like a, a native Absolutely. multi-cam would be amazing i too yeah. I do all yeah and like one of the things about the multicam is that it has traditionally been a space where like yes, white exactly. America is like forced to sort of confront the ways in which it sucks yeah um but uh I do like wonder if there is a thing where for people 
of like our generation and older, these multi-cam rhythms are so embedded in us that it's impossible to find them funny again. And I'm wondering if as these younger generations, it Gen has to Z be a and, little and distance. Yeah. yeah, my child belongs to generation alpha, I've learned. Uh, or possibly alpha? possibly all I the think, way back around? Possibly I think they're calling them like the echoes or no, the polars because they grow up in a polarized America. And I'm like, my child is a baby. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, as as wait, I are my it, children the echoes? Probably. I think they are. Yeah. I think it's like I think it's like Congrats. if you were, I think Thanks. it's like if you were born after 2015. So, oh, so Claire's a mm. cusp. She's a cusp <laughs> echo. <laughs> well, you know, you saying that made me think of another line that I loved from this episode, which is near the end of the episode, Eldon is trying to coerce Murphy into making a statement about mm -hmm. the Dan Quayle fiasco that has kind of created itself. And she says, he's a baby, not a political statement. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's, I think that's a great line. And I also think, you know, Jesus Christ, politicians could maybe stop using children as cudgels. Um, that, but, you know, that's sorry, so, yeah. that's so resonated with me as a trans, right. trans mom who sure. briefly was breastfeeding. Um, mm. until it became very annoying um that's so true about breastfeeding <laughs> but um but i was just was like listen if i you know that was when i was still at vox and i assumed i was going to come back to vox and i was like should i write about this should i talk about right. this because like it's a thing people are always surprised to find out which is that literally any human can breastfeed a baby if they have the right hormone cocktail mm -hmm. but like you say that and certain people freak the fuck out and i was like yeah. but this is my kid i don't want to yeah. turn my kid into a political football and then i got fired so i didn't we didn't have to figure out how i'd answer that <laughs> not question. because of that though but just no. just to be clear and then i talked about it on a podcast at the end of an episode about murphy brown so that's right but i i do think that like one of the and again having not watched nearly as many episodes as you as you guys have that this show can slip in a line like that that is really powerful and you and throw it away right like the way that candace bergen delivers it it's not like you know um aaron sorkin would for instance right like i think that it <laughs> just Look, just as a possible you know you know sorkin has has his place you want a soaring you want a soaring course, score sometimes we we humans need that to respond. Sorkin, sorkin should reboot murphy brown oh boy it'd be terrible i can't I wait you all could see the look on Catherine's face. yeah i can't tell if it's horror or elation i don't it's... know it's a real kombucha girl response that's <laughs> yeah. happening inside my body right now but it, it i mean i guess it just goes to show that like these two shows are obviously a, uh, over a decade apart in terms of their premieres, right? Obviously, The West Wing is an overtly political show. And I think that this show, and by that I mean Murphy Brown, finding a way to exist in this kind of political maelstrom and be funny and be, you know, I mean, the fact that Corky and Murphy exist on the same show is also a way of just sort of making it clear that, like, Women come in all shapes and sizes. They are, there's a spectrum here. They don't need to just fit into one thing. Yeah, and they represent second and third wave feminism. So yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. They do. They do. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Uh, Corky's no, great. It's though. true. I love, I mean, I think Corky, the way Corky, for as much as the show. Uh, uses her as a punchline. Yeah. <laughs> well, uses her as a punchline and then also slips in its later seasons. The oh, sort of total arc of Corky as a, character is one of the stronger 
recommendations for like Murphy Brown as a complete show because does she end up with Miles at some point she gets married to Miles and then they get divorced and then I think she gets married again but like by the 10th season okay (laughs) sitting literally it's her and Lily Tomlin who takes over the Miles role um, and and Candace and Candace brothers an episode where uh, Murphy Brown is trying to decide whether to have a total mastectomy or a lumpectomy. And these are the kind like, it's a very long conversation. And so they all decide to like make a major decision about their lives to support her and her, dis- her need to make this major decision. And Corky's like, I'm going to therapy. And then, <laughs> and Lily Tomlin like That's gives her, a, gives her a psychoanalyst's card and tells her she's going to get like a referral discount. Like it's great. There That's are funny. really good things sure. about season 10. Season she, I'm, I'm yeah. seeing here that, that Corky, marries someone and her name becomes Corky Sherwood Forrest. Yes. For a little while. Yes. And but then it doesn't stick. It doesn't yeah. stick. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean the Miles and Corky getting together thing um again, I don't know the episode was It's very it. news radio. It well, I was gonna, I, it made me think of Miles, uh, it made me think of Niles and um Daphne. Daphne, yeah. 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 In terms of like, you know, nerd getting hot girl basically. <laughs> The, the tale is all this time. The tale is all this time. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Um, yeah. The uh, I I do like one thing I love. Like you, we mentioned that sort of powerful line. And one thing I love about the multicam is that the audience, be, the live studio audience, becomes a character. So you can do a dramatic moment, and the scene shifts because the audience watching it shifts. Like I think Cheers was probably the best at that. And incidentally, I teased this earlier, but I think Cheers should be rebooted. I think somebody. Oh, should do you do think Cheers. so much of reboot Cheers? I think someone. I think Cheers, because it's built around a bar, is yeah. like uniquely well suited, and it tells stories about class. Is uniquely well suited to do a season where there's a to do a series where there's a whole bunch of new people working there. Ted Danson comes in every so often. Some of the others come in every so often. I think there's like I think Rhea Perlman's probably like the regular you bring back, but like I think there's like real room there to do something interesting in sort of that legacy sequel. Oh, uh, and the 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 sports CTE storyline like that you can write that itself because coach was never because he was yeah. constantly forgetting stuff and so yeah, like that's sure. a, that's an easy rewrite now like yeah yeah, yeah. and like uh, I, do, do you guys remember the show Abby's? You, speaking of Cheers, yes, you remember this? Yes, and it starred um, what's her yeah. name? It starred Natalie, Natalie Morales, Morales, and it was mm-hmm. produced yeah. by Mike Schur, and it I was like this show. <laughs> she had like a bar in her backyard. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember reading about the premise and being like, that actually sounds fun. And it was multicam. I never watched an episode of it. But was it was it like, just because when it, you brought up Cheers, Emily, it made me think of like, it was 100% one of those shows that like needed to live with itself for a certain number of episodes, okay. while it figured out how stuff clicked, and it did not get that runway. Okay. And then, you know, and then it died. Uh, I mean, yeah, the premise was all there. It had it was a pretty sweaty pilot. It was trying to like shoehorn in a lot of like, this is the, this person and the, this person. And okay. I mean, okay. you go back and you watch that Cheers pilot and like, you can't believe how gracefully it manages to do all okay. of that work. Um, so I don't know who you get to write the Cheers pilot that can create that same kind of um, casual sort of yeah. ease to it. Well, some for, of it was. It's, it's conceptually just for a set in San Diego. The series takes place at the home of Abby, a bisexual Latina ex-Marine sergeant who turned mm-hmm. her backyard into a bar. 
Hell yeah. That's a normal sentence. The thing, I mean, the thing about the Cheers pilot is they rewrote it like 17 times because they kept coming up with new angles for it. And like, uh, so like by the time it was on the air, it was like really finely honed. Um, Before we wrap, go ahead. Yes, please. Yes, no, go ahead. Uh, Before we wrap, can I read to you the lead of my uh, Murphy Brown Explained article from 2018? Because it is some real Emily St. James on her bullshit stuff. This is going to be a little bit, so I apologize for you're just going to hear my voice for a while. Okay. In their 1997 book, The Fourth Turning, authors William Strauss and Neil Howe attempted to explain American history via a series of endlessly repeating cycles, with each one spanning between 80 and 90 years. In Strauss and Howe's telling, you can reduce the country's history and human history more generally to an endless sequence of crises, leading to reunifications, leading to awakenings, leading to unravelings, leading to more crises. An idea within the fourth turning that feels particularly resonant in 2018 is that of the Grey Champion, taken from a famous Nathaniel Hawthorne short story in which the ghost of an old man shows up to taunt some British soldiers in the 17th century. The Grey Champion is an older person whose interests align with a younger hero generation in the midst of a vast crisis, and the resulting coalition of the great man and the great generation summarily ends the crisis and saves the world past gray champions have included abraham lincoln and franklin delano roosevelt so you know big shoes to fill the fourth turning is one of those works of pop sociology that feels incredibly convincing as you read them until you realize just how feverishly strauss and how are working to force history to conform to their thesis but it is kind of compelling how they predicted in 1997 that the 2010s would be another crisis period when society would seem on the brink of utter collapse and a gray champion would emerge to carry forward the hopes of a new younger generation The obvious question then is, who will our great champion be? Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Elizabeth Warren, Ted Danson? Well, what if it was Murphy Brown? What a lead. What What? the fuck? You, that is the most Emily shit I've ever heard. They just let me get away with all kinds of bullshit until they didn't. (laughs) How did they let you get away with that from an SEO perspective? You got to get Murphy Brown in the first, like, 20 words. Well, they had... The headline does have, you know, Murphy Brown all over it. And this was back when you could do like an SEO specific headline and have it kind of work. But yes, that's incredible, Emily. That might be, I mean, I I might need to make that into like a poster print that you can frame and put on your wall. Thank you. Because that is incredible. Yeah. Wow. You really covered the gamut. You are a great champion. (laughs) That is, I don't even really know what to say to that. I mean, that's incredible. I, I, I do think though that like, just sort of a, a grander question as we wrap this up, but like, does Murphy, if there was a Democrat in office, would Murphy Brown have got made? If you understand my question, like you've got two, you've got two terms of, of Reagan, right? Um, obviously you have Jimmy Carter before that, but like you've just this swath of Republican bullshit. I feel like this show being a reaction to that has to be a selling feature, right? Like it has to be part of how it gets made. Is that a crazy notion? Or do you think that she's not nearly as sort of, okay. I don't think it's a crazy notion, but I do think, I do think there was going to be for reasons outside of like strict Republican Democrat breakdown, there was right. going to be some show that was like, what if career woman, but maybe too much, like because of how, sure, sure, sure. because of just the way that, that um, the entire like cycle of uh, 
women's role in the workplace had finally gotten to a place where you might have a woman who is over 40 who is actually at the top of an incredibly visible media industry, right? Like, it was a collision of a lot of different things. Would it have taken the specific shape that it did where that career was newswoman who yells about politics? I don't know. I I kind of doubt it. Um, But but there was going to be some Murphy-esque figure at the head of one of these things in some form or another i think yeah you know it, it's funny too because i was re-watching the newsroom recently oh wow uh, for... oh it's emily and my favorite show yeah, yeah you guys mm-hmm. love that show mm-hmm. uh that mm-hmm. show's crazy uh i started re-watching it because you know whatever it doesn't matter but um because you love it no because i was we did i did a studio 60 patreon episodes so i watched all of studio 60 and then mm. i was just like oh you were let's see. i was like let's see what the new i've been watching the newsroom since it aired like uh what's that like and it's weird guys uh the newsroom is weird but um, the newsroom hbo 10 p.m new to, <laughs> uh what, is it? what would it be right now what's the what's the name of the main character again will will will, will interrogates will ron desantis about how he's weird yeah. Maggie, can't, oh, oh yeah. they're going to bring on an AP psych professor to talk about why you can't teach AP psych yep. in Florida anymore. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then they're going to also, this AP psych professor behind the scenes is going to give them all like Enneagram exams where they yeah. get, they find out their personality types, right? That's yeah. what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. 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 Maggie Maggie interrogates whether trans women have an unnatural advantage at swimming by having a race against Emily St. James. Yeah. Phil watches all of the newsroom. That's the I, the plot reason of that, that I bring this up is because I feel like weirdly Mackenzie is Aaron Sorkin's Murphy Brown. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I can't say that you're wrong, and I'm so sad about it. It's like if Murphy down Murphy Brown fell over a lot, right? Like if Murphy Brown it. had a head injury, yeah. she would be Mackenzie. Mackenzie, uh, McHale, of course. Oh my god! Uh, but yeah, it's just it because it, 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 it does feel like obviously both these shows are newsroom shows and all of that, and mm-hmm. and Lord knows television loves to make shows about television about making television but like only in a kind of cursory way like they don't really want to get into the nitty-gritty of it because like no one really cares about it that much turns out most people don't care about it at all (laughs) but but i do think that like that is that's sorkin's uh murphy brown i think that that's That's so depressing (laughs) that's great you know what (laughs) it feels like the right way to end this episode yeah um so uh where can first of all Catherine, thank you for coming on of course where can people find you where can they read you? Where can they give your home address, please? Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I am still on the platform formerly known as Twitter. I, um, I will probably always be there until it dies, but I'm trying to look at it less. I'm trying to have it be less of the major part of my life, uh, but I, you can find me there. I'm also on blue ski. I'm kind of liking it over there on okay. in the, in the blue ski space. It's pretty uh, chill over there. It is pretty chill. Yeah. yeah. There's a yeah. lot of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pets and there's like custom gardening feet. I get really into, <laughs> Yeah. um i'm on instagram also uh it, i'm sure you can figure out all there's you know you all of the ways yeah, i'm sure. around yeah you're around I... and you're uh still at vulture obviously so i am people I... can read you people can read me on vulture i i write about tv i write about um comedy specials 
Um, I'm really, we're just getting going on a very big project that's going to take many months to talk before it actually exists. So I'm not going to talk about it right now, but I've been okay. watching a lot of very old TV at Paley for it, which is the best. That's Sounds exciting. Awesome. That's I, awesome. you are, you are one of the people who I still read and one of the, the, in the TV criticism space space. And one of the people where I'm like, she might someday write a long lead about the fourth turning <laughs> by Neil Street. <laughs> Uh, which will include the line i forgot to read this look to the east there your great champion rides america she is the great baby boomer liberal lion murphy brown wow that's a t-shirt that is look to the east look to the east murphy brown (laughs) um well people should read you you are one of my favorite tv critics out there right now oh that's so nice um so i i'm honestly thankful that you took the time to to talk murphy with us it's truly an honor um, and uh, we hope that you'll come back and talk about something else in the future. Some other television show that needs to I, be spoken about. Or I, Beethoven. <laughs> no. I refuse I to make Catherine talk about Beethoven. have seen a lot of Beethoven. <laughs> have you seen all the Beethovens, though? No, no. Okay. But There's six I of would, them. No, I think I've seen three, but I've seen okay. one... 400 times so like does that count your you kids know? are big fans of beethoven no as a child we had the vhs oh, we didn't have that many okay. vhs's so it was like that and homeward bound no but then we would also have to talk about um the air buddies universe which is my most uh like what happened to dog movies and my god if you don't know what happened to dog movies i have a story for you what happened to dog movies is the new future book by uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i i mean so wait, you had only uh, VHSs of Animals in Peril? No, but my dad would go to the library and then illegally rip library VHSs, but only if it seemed like we would actually like them enough to make mm. it worth, because it was kind of illegal and he would say that, but then he would still do it. So it was like I was getting a lot of missed messages, but we definitely had <laughs> Beethoven. And I don't know, we watched it just over and over and over oh, and wow. over and over again. Yep. So that was your introduction to Charles Grodin? Was uh, Beethoven? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Emily can't wait to do our Beethoven episode. She she speaks of it. It's also my introduction to Charles Grodin. Come to think of it, <laughs> Beethoven. It's like normal. What are yeah. you talking about? I think mine was Heart and Souls. If I'm being completely okay, honest. Okay, I mean that's fine, but it's like a good movie though. But Beethoven, you know what? I've never seen Beethoven. Oh, I, so there's a line in Beethoven. This is a Beethoven episode. Now we're starting again. Um. There's a line in Beethoven where she rolls over and it's the dog. He's in bed with the dog. Sure. He doesn't know it's the dog. And the dog licks his ear and he goes, it's not even Friday. And I was like, what does that mean? What happens on what's, Fridays? What is adulthood like? What is, how do I decode like this specific? I guess Friday night's the only night they have sex. Uh, that's guess. married life for you. That is. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, so these are things we will unpack on our future Beethoven episode at some point. Um, thank you so much, Catherine. Oh, this was pleasure. an absolute blast. And, yeah. uh, and we hope to talk soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you.